Please turn with me to the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23. This is the Word of God. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the sure promises contained in it. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be turned to you now, would be changed by your word. I pray, Lord God, that any of my own words that are spoken um, that are not in accordance to your word, that they would be sifted from the minds and the hearts of this congregation, that they would be blown away as chaff, and that only the true wheat of your word would remain in the heart. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit now and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on 13 January 1842, a solitary figure, exhausted and bleeding, rode into the British garrison at Jalalabad, Afghanistan. His horse collapsed and died. The commander of the garrison came and asked him, Where is the army? To which he replied, Sir, I am the army. His name was Assistant Surgeon William Bryden, and he was the sole survivor of the worst massacre in British military history. You see, over the course of the previous seven days and over some 40 miles, over 16,000 soldiers, their families, servants, and camp followers had been killed by Afghani tribesmen in the freezing winter conditions in a place called the Valley of Jajduluk. The men of this disaster, this massacre, was so egregious, so terrible, that it, it motivated um, the British military poet Rudyard Kipling to pen these words. When you're wounded on, on Afghanistan's plains, and the women come to cut up what remains, just roll to your rifle and blow out your brains, and you'll go to God like a soldier. Go, go, go like a soldier, a soldier of the queen. The men and their families who fought and bled and died in that place very literally walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, I doubt that any of us here have experienced such a valley, and I pray that none of us will, but we all do experience the shadow. And yet, our God calls us not to fear. And even if we were with those men and women of Her Majesty's 44th foot, trapped and frozen, being sniped at by day and slashed at by night, even then I think that we as Christians have the ability, the God-given ability, to say, I will fear no evil. Further, even if we do not have human enemies attacking us in war, like those men and women did, we know, as Pastor, Pastor Kaiser preached last week, 
that we do have spiritual enemies, and we are at war with them. One of the primary devices that Satan uses in his war against us is fear. But we can learn from this psalm how to fight back against that fear. You see, Psalm 23 is an expression of trust and faith in God that drives away our fears, that resists fear and causes it to flee. I think that is what is at the heart of this psalm, and that is what I would like to talk to you about today. Now, I mentioned the heart of the psalm. Uh, Interestingly, this phrase, I will fear no evil, is not only thematically the heart of the psalm, it is also structurally the heart of the psalm. Pastor Kaiser has pointed out to us before that understanding the structure or of a book or passage of Scripture is often key to unlocking the central theme and message of that passage and aids us in understanding the content of the passage. And here in Psalm 23, you find that it is no different. So thinking about Hebraic structure and thinking about Pastor Kaiser's recent teaching on structure, would anyone like to guess what kind of structure Psalm 23 is in? If you've seen the back of your hand lines, you know, back of your handout, you know that it is structured in a chiasm. And I do not want to spend too much time belaboring this point. I would primarily uh, like to just um, point it out, bring it to your attention, and move on to exposition. Um, However, you can refer to the back of your handout and see how the psalm is structured um, thematically and in the language itself as a chiasm. And if you're completely unfamiliar with what a chiasm is, um, it's basically a literary structure that forms a kind of X with two or four thoughts uh, crossing in the middle with, in the form of A, B, C, B prime, A prime, and the center C being the key thought, which is supported by the A's and the B's. And the reason, I'm, the reason I am choosing to focus on it now is that uh, we as Westerners are not used to thinking chiastically. Um, nor are we used to even seeing them in the text, but I really do believe that seeing Psalm 23 as a chiasm is very important in helping us to pick up on the core message of the psalm. That is this expression of faith that, with God's help, we can fear no evil. Another example of why I think it is important to see see Psalm 23 as a chiasm is that many commentators have pointed out the seeming disunity between the two apparent sections of the psalm, that is, Uh, verses 1 through 3 or 1 through 4, which talks about God as a shepherd, and verses 5 through 6, which talks about him more as a provider or someone who brings us provision. And as such, they have tended to speak of them separately. Uh, Taken as a chiasm, however, one can see how verses 1 through 3 and 5 through 6 beautifully punctuate verse 4. And looking at the psalm even more narrowly, the entirety of verse 4 is structured to punctuate the heart of the psalm. That is, I will fear no evil. So it is on verse 4, therefore, that I would like to spend the remainder of our time. However, it is worth taking a moment to clarify the kind of fear that I believe the psalm is addressing. It is a kind of fear that hinders us from trusting and obeying God. The 1611 King James King James Dictionary defines this type of fear as a painful emotion or passion excited by an expectation of evil or the apprehension of impending danger. This fear is accompanied with a desire to avoid or ward off the expected evil. Fear is an an uneasiness of mind upon the thought of future evil 
likely to befall us. This kind of fear robs us from our focus on God and places our focus on the thing that we fear. This psalm serves to reverse that. It redirects our attention back to God and away from the things that we fear and supplies us with the courage to trust and follow God. So, enough by way of introduction, but I do hope that seeing the structure of the psalm helps us to focus on the central theme of the psalm, an expression of faith that we can walk without fear. So, let us turn our focus to verse 4 of Psalm 23. Psalm 23, verse 4 reads, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Within this verse, I see four literary pairs that build upon, accentuate, or illustrate, emphasize the heart of the psalm, the statement of faith that we will fear no evil. Now, if you would like to follow along in the backs of your handout, I've included a visual representation of how that I've broken that out with colors and other things, um, just for your benefit. Now, contained in each literary pair, I see an element of potential fear, and I see its answer. The pairs are as follows. I see two statements of certainty, two actors, two actions, and two objects. In each of these pairs, the element of potential fear is always either man or other created things, and the answer to that fear is always God. So now that I have given that to you out front, let us examine each one of these pairs in turn. First, the statements of certainty. Look at the beginning of verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Not if I walk through the valley, not I might walk through the valley, but a hearty, yes, although I walk through the valley. This psalm assumes, and we must know, that believers will go through various trials. The psalms, in fact, are replete with examples of David and other godly men crying out to God in their times of trial. Psalm, excuse me, Philippians 129 tells us, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Suffering and trials are the reality of the Christian life. There is a famous Marine Corps recruiting poster that says, we don't promise you a rose garden. God doesn't promise you a rose garden either. As we know, God in fact promises us that if we are truly joined to Christ, we will face trials and suffering on this earth. Now that would be a pretty depressing thought by itself, but that is not the only thing that God has promised. He has also promised that he will be with us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. This is the second statement of certainty that I see, and it is the answer to the potential fear of the first. Now, the word for here at the beginning of the clause, for you are with me, is a conjunction. Conjunctions are words used to connect clauses and to show you how the two clauses are related. Here the word for is connecting the clause, you are with me, to the clause, I will fear no evil. And in this specific case, the conjunction for is being used to introduce the reason by which the previous clause is the case. 
It is essentially saying that because it is the case that you are with me, therefore, I will not fear. Over and over again in the book of Psalms, we see the same pattern, the same recognition and acknowledgement that yes, although we may go through trials, although we may walk through the valley, even still, God is with us. King David and all the rest of the Old Testament saints knew that they served a God who is unlike all the other gods of men, a God who is very near them. Now, dear saints, if those under the Old Covenant could have that faith, could have that sure knowledge, how much more can you and I trust and know that surely there is a God in Judah Surely He is with us even now. Surely He is walking with us every step of the way of our lives now that the Christ has come. Brothers and sisters, we serve Emmanuel, God with us. God made man. He who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled Himself, emptied Himself for us. He lived a perfect life on your behalf. He went to the cross, suffering the punishment for your sins. He rose again. He sits at the right hand of God, and He holds in His hands the keys to death and Hades. Therefore, I will fear no evil. The same Jesus Christ is with you even now. And if the Lion of Judah is with us, who can come against us? This is the second statement of certainty that I see, that Yahweh is with us. Yes, it is certain that we will go through trials, and this may tempt us to fear, but the answer to that fear is God's wonderful, wonderful promise to be with us always. Remember God's words to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In addition to seeing two statements of certainty in this verse, I also see two actors. The first actor is the one who is walking through the valley and potentially being fearful. And the second actor is the one who is the answer to that fear. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So the first actor in this verse is us. We are the ones who fear now, we often use language, we often describe fear as something that affects us, as if it is some kind of force that had causative powers over us. But I want to be clear here that we are the agents. We are the ones who act, and fear is an action or internal disposition that we choose to take. Fear is also a sin. It is a sin because it is an act of unfaithfulness to God. And whatever is not from faith is sin, according to Romans 14.23. Further, Hebrews 11.6 teaches us that without faith it is impossible to please God. I do want to make a careful distinction, however, between momentary feelings of fear on the one hand and living in fear or acting out of fear on the other. The first, although very real, is fought against with spiritual warfare and does not keep us from doing what God desires of us. 
Living in fear, however, is a sinful disposition of unfaithfulness against God. And God is displeased with such fear. Take heart, however, that God has not only given us remedies for this fear, such as we will see from this psalm, but he also understands us and has compassion on us. Psalm 103 tells us thus, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are but dust. I have in my mind a picture of a father teaching his young child to swim for the first time. And that child is scared to death to get into the water. Now, is that father vengeful against his own child for being afraid? No, of course not. He's holding on to his child, talking to him, telling him, I know that the water is scary, but do not be afraid. I have you, and I will not let you drown. That is the kind of tender care your heavenly father has towards you. But he does expect you to follow him into the water. There's an old saying that courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is acting in spite of fear. I think that distinction is reflected in Scripture, and I think it's reflected in the psalm. John Calvin, in his commentary on Psalm 23, puts it this way. David did not mean to say that he was devoid of all fear, but only that he would surmount it so as to go without fear wherever his shepherd should lead him. This appears more clearly from the context. He says in the first place, I will fear no evil. But immediately adding the reason for this, he openly acknowledges that he seeks a remedy against his fear in contemplating and having his eyes fixed on the staff of his shepherd. For thy staff and thy crook comfort me. What need would he have had for that consolation if he had not been disquieted and agitated with fear? It ought, therefore, to be kept in mind that when David reflected on the adversities which might befall him, he became victorious over fear and temptations in no other way than by casting himself on the care and protection of his God. So yes, Scripture acknowledges that there are truly fearful things in this world. May we not, however, act in fear. May we, like David, become victorious over our fear and temptations by casting ourselves upon the protection of God. 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us that no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So yes, In this world, we will have trouble, but take heart, Christ has overcome the world. It is God who we must look to, and it is God who is the second actor that I see in this verse. For you are with me, says David. Now in a moment, we are going to examine more closely the kinds of actions that God takes on our behalf. But for now, at this point in the verse, it is enough to say that God is with us, God acts, and he acts for us. So I see two actors in this verse. We are one of those actors, and we may act either in fear or faithfulness. God is the second actor, and he is always faithful. He is the remedy to our fear, 
and he's the one who empowers us to act in faithfulness. So according to this verse then, what is acting in faithfulness? That brings us to the two actions that I see in this verse. Walking through and walking with. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Simply put, acting in faithfulness is walking through the valley. Not around, not over, not halfway and back, but through, all the way through. When God calls us to walk through the valley, it is our duty to Him as our King and Captain to obediently follow Him, taking steps in faith. And I also want to stress that walking through the valley is not just a faithful action, it is an act of faith in God. And it must be an act of faith in God because without that, otherwise, our hearts will fail. I do not think that the valley of the shadow of death is a very pleasant place, and I doubt that David would have chosen to walk through that valley had God not first called him to do so. But he had the faith in God to supply him with everything he needed for that action. So in this verse, the faithful action that I see on our part is walking through the valley. It is a faithful action. We are being faithful to God in doing so. And it is an act of faith in God. God as our supplier. And one of the most important things, I think, that this verse is teaching us, that the kind of faith that results in faithful action is the kind of faith that casts out fear. That being the case, I wanted to spend a little more time here at this point in the verse uh, thinking about that kind of faith, the kind that removes fear, because I think that is the kind of faith that the psalm demands, and I think that it is the kind of faith that we must have if we are to act faithfully and walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will tell you that I struggled here a great deal trying to put this concept in a coherent fashion, this concept of a faith that casts out fear. So I decided that instead of John Mays just standing up here and bumbling about, I'm just going to read you some scripture. I'm going to read the entirety of Psalm 27, and you may turn there if you'd like. Psalm 27. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked come against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my, above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry in my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. 
Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your, your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me. O God of my salvation, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Saints, listen to the heart of David and let it be your own heart. What is a faith that casts out fear? This is. It is a faith that remembers that God is on our side and acts on our behalf. And when we remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to us in this way, in a Psalm 23 or a Psalm 27 way, the Holy Spirit takes that and He uses it and He makes us bold as a lion. The next time you are tempted to fear, the next time you are tempted to feel afraid, you say these words to God in faith and you will feel courage welling up inside your heart, I promise you, not because of any hocus-pocus in the words themselves or because of anything that you are in yourself, but because the Holy Spirit lives inside you and these are His words that He has given you for that express purpose to embolden you in your time of need to be able to face the valley and walk through it in faith. May God grant us the faith to do so, I pray. I would also point out that doing this, reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness to us, casting ourselves upon his care, and thus stirring up our own faith and boldness, is in itself an act of faith. It is an act of faithfulness to God when we remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to us and trust in him. That may seem like a small act of faithfulness when compared to actually walking through the valley. But our God is a God who is in the business of taking small things and making them very big things. So those are a few of the actions on our part that I think this verse models for us that we may take in obedience and faith. Now, what of God's actions? Time would fail us to talk of how God acts on our behalf. But here's one right here in this verse. You are with me. God has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. And God always keeps his promises. No matter how high those valley walls may seem nor how dark it may be at the bottom, the almighty creator God who made you and who sustains the entire universe by the power of his word, Elohim, is with you Always. Consider again David's words found in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know my sitting up, my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide me from you. But the night shines as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to you. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. I know of no greater encouragement than this, that our God is with us always. But consider also God's supreme act of faithfulness and love towards us, that he sent his Son to die for us. God is a God who loves you so much that he sent his Son to die for you. And in so doing, has given you into the Son's hands. And the Son has said, They shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Christ has us in his hands, and there is nothing or nobody that can take us from him. And in relation to Christ, as we're speaking about Christ, I do have one final thought regarding God walking with us through the valley. And it ties back to the statement I made earlier about Emmanuel, God with us, God made man. The book of Hebrews says this regarding Christ, our mediator. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain the mercy to find help in time of need. You see, Jesus knows what it is like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He walked through the deepest, darkest valley any man ever will. The book of Luke records that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' soul was in such agony that he sweat blood. Oh God, let this cup pass from me. But, he said to the Father, not as I will, but as you will. And he willingly went went to the cross. Christ's supreme act of faithfulness is our example. Spurgeon put it this way, As surely as this word of God is true, your Lord has felt the chill of the death shade. There is no gloom of spirit apart from the sin of it, into which Jesus has not fallen. There is no trouble of soul or turmoil of heart, which is free from sin, which the Lord has not known. He, Jesus, says, reproach has broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. The footprint of the Lord of life is set in the rock forever, even into the valley of the shadow of death. Shall we not cheerfully advance to the cross and death of Jerusalem when Jesus goes before us? So yes, Jesus goes before us. He walked through the valley uh, for us. But you know what else? 
Jesus didn't just walk through the valley once and then leave. He continues to walk through the valley with us. Now, I don't have it all figured out. I don't understand all of it. But I trust the Word of God when it says that when we are persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That is the high priest we have. He has walked through the darkest valley anyone ever has. He knows exactly what you may be going through and is actively walking with you through it. Let us therefore not fear, but come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and to help in our time of need. So, God always acts in faithfulness to us. He has promised never to leave us and walks with us every step of the way. Our response to him in turn, the act of faith that we take, is to obediently follow him, obediently follow him with a faith that casts out fear. Let us now turn our attention to the final literary pair that I see in this verse, the object of our fear and the objects of our comfort. So then, the object of our fear, the valley itself, the valley of the shadow of death. I have three, three thoughts about this valley. First, notice that it is a valley. A valley is a place that is low. It is deep. It is dark. There are high, rocky crags on either side of you. You probably cannot see your way through. And yes, dangers may lurk on either side. But I think that the picture that this verse is painting for us is not so much uh, just the fear of attack, but the true dread of this place, this valley, is a thick spiritual oppression. Now, if you want a better picture of this than I can give you here and now, I would encourage you to read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Bunyan describes the valley as a place full of terror and confusion and demons and dangers and a single thin pathway leading through it. Bunyan writes also that the pathway here was so dark that oftentimes when he, that is Christian, would lift up his foot to set it forward, he knew not where or upon what he should set it next. Sometimes God leads us into places of great darkness where we cannot seem to put one one foot in front of the other. Spurgeon again said this, There are experiences of the children of God which are full of spiritual darkness, and I am almost persuaded that those of God's servants who have been most highly favored have nevertheless suffered more times of darkness than others. He goes on to list examples such as Job or Christ himself. And this was so for John Bunyan, especially if you read Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, Bunyan's autobiography, you will find that for Bunyan, the valley of the shadow of death was a place of despair, despondency, and deep depression that he personally experienced. Now, I don't have the space here to dive into a theology of suffering, but if you're here today and you are suffering under the oppression of despondency, remember your caring Heavenly Father who knows your frame He knows you by name. You are his child. And he cares you and he loves you and he will not leave you floundering in the water. I encourage you to read Psalm 69, which starts by saying, Save me, O God, for the waters have come 
up to my neck. Psalm 69, and reflect on the, on the fact that Christ prayed this same prayer and experienced the same thing that you may be going through. Secondly, there are times and places where truly nothing seems to be able to lift us from the waters. Nothing seems to be able to raise our spirits, and we can do nothing else but to cry to God for our help. Returning to Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan writes this, About the midst of this valley I perceived the mouth of hell to be, and it stood also hard by the wayside. Now, thought Christian, what shall I do? And ever and anon the flame and smoke would come out in such abundance with sparks and hideous noises, things that cared not for Christian's sword, added Apollyon before, that he was forced to put up his sword and betake himself to another weapon called all prayer. So he cried out in my hearing, O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Prayer and crying out to God in this manner is a weapon that we can use against our enemy, the devil. And God says in Psalm 50, 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. This is God's promise to you. Remember again Christian's words when he was locked up by the giant despair. I have a key in my bosom called promise. That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Finally, if you are down in the valley, go ask someone for help. If you think you know someone who is suffering in the valley, go offer help. Bunyan's Christian, as he was walking through the valley, took courage when he heard the words of another believer who was in the valley with him, praying the words of this psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God has promised to always be with us, but he has given you and I one another. He has given us, the church, the body of believers, as a gift to us, as a gift to one another, to stir one another up. So let us use it. So much for the valley itself. Secondly, I observe that it is a valley of shadow. This conjures up images of danger or peril that we cannot often see or grasp. Now, a man may pluck up the courage in himself to face an evil that he knows, but an evil that he does not know makes him shrink. Fear and uncertainty and doubt about a future that we do not know is a very real temptation. Now, I may not know what the future holds. I don't know what's going to happen next month, year, day even. But I do know that God is in control, and he has promised me that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That I'm certain of, and that is all I wish to say about shadow. My final thought about the valley of the shadow is death shadow of death, is related to the Hebrew language itself. Now, the Hebrew word here that is translated shadow of death is more literally rendered death shade and translated elsewhere in the Bible as black gloom or deepest darkness. Calvin, in his commentary, says that this expression seems to denote imminent danger, sore affliction, fear and terror, and dreadful darkness. The valley is a bad place. And I do worry that because we are so familiar with this psalm and this phrase, that when we read it, we can kind of just brush over it. Like, oh yes, 
the valley of shadow of death, and then we move on. And I think that it would be a helpful mental exercise the next time you read the psalm, or better meditate on it, um, that you say something along the lines of, Yea, though I go through the deepest, darkest, most fearful, most dreadful thing I can possibly ever imagine, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Whatever the object of our potential fear may be, even if it is the most dreadful thing we can possibly imagine, the object of our comfort is God. And he is much, much bigger than whatever it is we are facing. I therefore wish to turn our attention to the objects of David's comfort. God's rod and staff. Now the rod and the staff are the tools of a shepherd. And they tie the reason of David's comfort back to the statement of faith made earlier in the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The image of the Lord as a shepherd demonstrates his care, his provision, and his protection. God is personally concerned with the welfare of his sheep, and he takes provisions for them. Further, a shepherd leads his sheep with purpose. God would never lead us, his sheep, into the valley without having a very good reason for doing so. And to this point, um, it is also worth broadening our focus back out a little bit to the rest of the psalm, um, specifically verse 3, which reads, He leads me in paths of righteousness. This doesn't just mean that God leads us towards righteous actions or leads us into righteousness, but that He leads us down righteous paths. He leads us down the right paths. He leads us down the paths that bring His sheep to their destination the quickest, as opposed to crooked paths. So, even when the right, right paths bring us his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death, there is no need for fear. Your shepherd has us there for a reason, and he has promised to be with you. This in itself is a great comfort in times of distress. But the instruments by which God shepherds us, his rod and staff, should also bring his comfort. Jesus is your good shepherd, and God's word promises that he will use his rod of iron to smash his enemies. And this same smashing rod that Jesus welds, he uses in your defense. He protects you with this smashing rod. And Jesus Christ is a warrior shepherd who will guard you. Now, obviously, we cannot presume upon God's providence in our lives, but what a comfort to know that as long as God wants us here on this earth, he will preserve us and he will protect us and there's nothing that can take us from him. Remember the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the, God, the golden image which you have set up. May we have such trust and faith in God. I recall also, um, excuse me, consider also the shepherd's staff. It is an instrument that the shepherd uses to guide and direct the sheep, to steer them away from danger, and to keep them on the right path. 
God has not left you to wander this world alone. And he has not left you to walk without guidance. And praise God, because without his staff guiding us, we would surely lose our way. Without his staff hemming us in and bringing us near to him, we would surely wander from our shepherd. Because all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one of us to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ is our good shepherd who has laid down his life for his sheep. And if he has brought you with such a price, if he has bought you with such a price, surely he will hold on to you. Surely he will preserve us and guide us with his staff. So, God's rod and staff are the objects of our comfort and they are the instruments by which God preserves us in the valley. I would also like you to notice that God's rod and staff are the focus of David's attention. You see, David does see the valley. He sees, he sees the valley, he acknowledges its terror and difficulties, but he places his focus not on the valley, but on God. I am reminded of the 12 spies who were sent to spy out the land of Canaan. The 10 spies saw the land and brought back an evil report. Literally in the Hebrew, uh, an evil tongue, slander against God. Their focus was on the giants. But the two, what did they say? If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of this land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The two saw the exact same giants as the ten, but their focus was on God, and they knew that God was much, much bigger. I pray that God would remove from us a worldly eye that sees only the giants, that sees only the enemies encamped around us, that he would open our spiritual eyes to see the hills around us full of horses and chariots of fire. That we would know and trust that those, are, that those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. Because it is when we are focused on God that we are enabled and emboldened to face his enemies and to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So then, people of God, we are at the end. God has promised us that we will encounter various trials in this life. But he has also promised us that he will be with us, even to the end of the age. Yes, our shepherd will lead us through valleys, and it is ours to walk them. But he has compassion on us. He remembers our frame. He guides and protects us, and he will walk with us every step of the way. He has promised to guard us with his rod and to guide us with his staff, and we can trust him always to lead us down the right paths. When our focus is upon him, we are enabled to take steps in faith. God is a shepherd who loves you, promises to never leave you, and provides you with the means of salvation. What then is our response to our shepherd? What is our heart response to God? What then shall we say to these things? If God is with us, 
Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him willingly for you, delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who sits at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. We are killed all day long. Yet we are more than conquerors in all these things through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, it is for this reason that I am resolved in my spirit that I will fear no evil. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this psalm. We love you. We trust you. We trust you to lead us. We do know that you lead us through valleys, but Lord God, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us this psalm. May you embolden it in our hearts. May it live inside us and our minds and our hearts and our spirit, and may we act by it. I ask your Holy Spirit to use this word to move through us and to embolden us to walk faithfully this week. I pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.